Hello and welcome to our special International Women's Day podcast here in Rick Radio. I'm Jennifer Gallen. Uh, later, we're talking to Ringsend and Irish Town Community Centre's own Jennifer Betts and her mother, Julie, about her life in Ringsend and being an inspiration on Jennifer. We're also catching up with Mary Moynihan from Smashing Times uh, Theatre Company and they are doing a selection of monologues here in the community centre tonight at 7pm. We're also talking about the 244 reasons to end gender-based violence. That is the exhibition that is on today at 6pm for everyone to check out here in the centre. Uh, that is being launched by Labour TD Ivana Batchik and we had a chat with Ivana just about her life in politics and issues around women women in politics and women in public life. Hi, Ivana. Thanks so much for doing this. Um, I know it's just been so much hassle and getting into your busy schedule. So really, Oh, really look, not at all, Jen, but delighted I can do it actually on the phone. I had thought I'd have to go down to you. So this is much easier. It's yeah. great. Thanks. Easier for both of us now at this stage, I think. Yeah, so, I know, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so we're just Perfect. doing a broadcast um, for International Women's Day. And I know great. that you are coming down to open that the exhibition for the 244 Reasons to End. And gender-based yes. violence. Yeah. At 6.30 on, on, on Tuesday, tomorrow evening. Yeah. And I think we were interviewing one of the girls that uh, actually was taking part in the project, and Amber, and we were saying we were sh- shocked by the numbers and also just when we were going through the actual, uh, you know, files about the women, we are just shocked by the lack of photos and the lack of information on some. Yes, and I know, I know. project, yeah. I think, it's, it's about, like, it needs to keep the, the memory of... Yes. women alive I think yeah no it's very very important yeah and and just we were saying that because there was that lack of information because numbers had only you know started to be on record since 1996 like this is such an important project Yes. Yeah, no, it is. It's a really important project, you know, really happy to support it. Yeah. And we were yeah. talking about like just how prevalent it is Um, just gender based abuse really and harassment is so prevalent these days, especially online, I think, as well. And a lot of young people are experiencing it online. Um, and how do you think that we can combat this? How do you think, you know, can the government even combat this or step in? Is there any way to, to improve these matters? Well, I think there's, as you say, there's a really terrible incidence of abuse of women and gender-based violence against directed against women and girls going on, particularly on social media, but also just in, in you know, when we look at domestic violence figures and we look at assaults on women and, you know, the sort of everyday sexism that goes on as well. So I think what the government can do to combat this is, first of all, to bring in really strong legislation governing, um, governing abusive behaviour online, because that's where we do have a missing link currently. You know, we had we did bring in um, a harassment and, and harmful communications law just last year, which was initiated by Labour, actually called Coco's Law to try and uh, to bring in stronger penalties against online bullying and harassment. But we do also need to ensure that there's a, a you know, remedy where um, social media outlets are forced to take down harmful messages about women and girls uh, and uh, and where there's that remedy in place too. So, so really putting the onus back on the networks mm. uh, to ensure that they and the internet service providers to ensure that they're taking action too. And do you also think it's a case of education as well, like it starts in education and are we actually broaching these topics enough in school? Are we, you know, I mean, there's there's two parallel things to this really when you're, you're looking at 
there's a lot of conversation about single sex schools and are is that yes. something that we want to still continue with um are we shooting ourselves in the foot basically if we're not mixing uh, with like our children are not mixing from you know primary school right into secondary school is this something that's you know because we're not around each other all the time are these conversations happening organically and do men kind of feel or boys feel forced into these discussions do you think that's part of it as well well, I think there's a huge issue around stereotyping and gender stereotyping. And as you may know, I'm chair of the Oireachtas Committee on Gender Equality, and we're um, looking at how to implement the 45 recommendations from the Citizens' Assembly on Gender Equality. And they had a number of important recommendations on violence against women, but they all, you know, looking at things like in, ensuring enough sheltered shelter places for women and children fleeing domestic abuse. But they also have a, load, a, a number of recommendations on stereotypes and education and the need to ensure that stereotypes are challenged in education to ensure gender neutral career information and advice is given from an early age and so on. But I do think an important part of the education reform needed is a move away from single sex schools. And actually, Aon O'Reardon, our education spokesperson, has been really strong on that. Look, you know, we should, what we should be looking to do really is phase out single sex schools, particularly at secondary. I think it's really important, uh, sorry, particularly at primary, I should say, it's really important that at primary school age, that children are playing together and learning together and um, and that, you know, and that we're sort of moving away from that very outdated model of primary education that is segregated by sex, which is really unique to Ireland. I mean, very, no other European country do we see children segregated at such an early age. Yeah. So I think that's a key, that is a key change we and do I, need to make. I think it's a strange one because I think I went to like an all-girls school and I think the onus was really, that was put upon us was the fact that we wouldn't be distracted by... Yeah. Boys, and that's how we learned better. And like they were trying to make it out that this was actually a good thing because you're concentrating on your studies. And you see girls, there's always the numbers that say girls achieve more, you know, on their own, and the girls are higher achievers. And do, do you think that, that these arguments have any water anymore? Well, I've certainly seen those arguments in respect of girls at secondary, and um, and I went to an all-girls secondary myself, um, and I do, you know, and there is some evidence, some evidence, and some research showing girls performing better at secondary and single-sex schools. But I think that is really now related to, a, um, I suppose, again, a, a more dated view, which would have been where teachers weren't aware of gender stereotyping, and where teachers tended to favour boys in a in a, in a co-ed classroom. Boys would be more called upon to answer. Boys would be encouraged to speak up in a way girls weren't. And I think really there are other ways of countering that and ensuring that girls do better or as, at least as well as boys, if not better, in, in co-ed secondaries. And it's really about training teachers and ensuring that teachers are watchful for any favouring, inadvertent favouring of boys, what we call that sort of unconscious bias that mm. all of us are sometimes guilty of, where we, you know, we think that judges can only be, we assume a judge to be male or a president to be male. And of course, you know, in Ireland, we've now had a number of great women presidents. We now have quite a number of women judges uh, more, and, you know, still not enough women as judges or women in politics. But, you know, we're moving there. And that really helps to change the stereotype and change our and and, and change our view of, of what, a uh, you know, somebody in a, in a position of power looks like. So I think all of this is, is, is helpful. So I think there are other ways to ensure that girls do as well as boys at secondary, even in a co-ed setting. Mm, and you're saying there about unconscious bias and just the representation of women. And we're still kind of yes. lacking, I would say, in that uh, women in public life and I think when we were talking around you know social media and the the abuse that women face and it, it very much not even just in politics but I think it puts uh, it prevents a lot of women from putting themselves forward in any 
public roles because they are afraid of image being put first rather than anything else. And, you know, it's like that Ginger Rogers whole quote about, you know, women do everything, yeah. you know, backwards and heels. <laughs> and like, do you feel that it, it is something that women are still discouraged from entering public life because of this and has social media made it worse? Yes, I mean, I did research some years ago about why women are less likely to enter politics than men. And we called it the five C's, you know, that women have a lack of cash compared to men. We have lack of childcare compared, you know, we need more childcare supports. We lack confidence compared to men. There's an old boys culture in politics, Mm. as in a lot of different areas. And then there's a fifth C of candidate selection. And that in political parties, we often see women discriminated against at candidate selection, you know, in other words, going forward for election. So all of these things need to be countered to get more women into encourage more women into politics. But there is this other C that everyone's worried about, which is cyber security and cyber bullying. And, you know, certainly that can be very off-putting, I think, for women, young women and girls in particular to see the sort of, you know, often very toxic commentary on social media about women in politics or in leadership. And, um, and women and girls feeling put off by that. So I think it's really important that any of us who are in public life would would stand firm against that sort of bullying and ensure that, you know, it doesn't serve to discourage women and girls from going forward. Because the more women and girls we get into politics, the more politics changes and it becomes more collaborative and it becomes less shouty and less male, you know, yeah. and that's really important and do you for all of us. And do you self feel supported then in that way? Or has that been something yes. that's grown year on year? Well, look, you know, we still don't have enough women in politics. I've Mm. made it a life mission of mine to encourage more women to enter politics. We're still in very small numbers in the doll, though. You know, I was only the 37th woman elected. That's out of 160 TDs. So less than a quarter, less than a quarter of our TDs are women, only 23%. Like, that's really low by European standards. So we need to do more, you know, because... What it means is that over three quarters of our TDs are men. And that obviously has an influence on the way in which our business and our politics are conducted and the way in which our government takes decisions. I think we should have a 50-50 balance in cabinet. You know, we should have Mm. half our cabinet should be female, for starters, you know, and we should certainly be electing more women to the Dáil and to the Shannon. So these are really important things that need to change. And uh, and we need to, you know, do all we can to encourage girls, young girls in particular, to go forward into politics, to be active in public life, to speak out and to help change our system. And with that 50-50 that you're talking about that split do you think then that gender quotas do help then? Yes, I do. I've been a strong advocate for gender quotas because, you know, the evidence shows that without some sort of positive action measure, things don't necessarily improve organically. In other words, if you're, it's called a trickle up fallacy, you know, the idea that inevitably more women will trickle up into professions or into politics. And really that hasn't happened. What we've seen in Irish politics, politics is a stagnation. You know, um, in 1992, actually, in, in that far back, it was thought there was a breakthrough then because women had, had you know, got women had hit a new high of 20% in in the doll. But of course, then nothing changed until we brought in the quota system. We do have a quota now. 30% of the the candidates from each political party must be, at least 30%, must be of each gender. So that's been really important. That has brought our numbers up a little, but it's stagnated again. So now we're bringing in a 40% quota for the next general election. 40% of the candidates, at least, that each political party chooses must be uh, women. So that's really positive. I think we'll see, therefore, an increase in the numbers of women standing for election next time around, and therefore an increase in the numbers elected, because the evidence shows the more women who stand for election, the more are elected. 
And the more women see themselves uh, represented in the political arena, I think the more encouraging that is for them because it's like anything. It's like, you know, in, in media, in culture, like if you see yourself on the screen, if you see yourself representa- rep- represented, you feel more encouraged and you feel more supported. So I think it is, you know, that's a, a cycle, a positive cycle that hopefully Absolutely. will increase. Absolutely. Yes, exactly, Jen. You know the line, if you can't see it, you can't be it. Yeah. So, you know, you, ha- you have to see women as role models and that it will encourage more women to come forward. And just because we were talking on International Women's Day and we we're talking about inspiring women, um, who would have been a woman that inspired you? Well, in my own family, my mother has always inspired me and continues to inspire me. She's still sea swimming in her 70s and she is and she's been a lifelong feminist and uh, and activist, you know, on women's rights and women's rights to contraception back in the 70s and 80s. And and more recently, she's been a huge supporter of my own. So my mom is a big feminist role model and icon for me. But of course, also, I was lucky in Trinity when I was a student there to have Mary Robinson as a lecturer. And she also is, is and remains a huge role model an icon and again you know has never lost sight of, of her political campaigning work uh, now on climate change and of course she's you know a leading international figure now on on how we challenge the climate crisis but she's always been a strong feminist role model for me too our thanks to Ivana Batrick and just to say the exhibition 244 reasons to end gender-based violence is launched by herself tonight at 6pm here in Ringsend and Irish Town Community Centre and I encourage anyone to come along and have a look at it. It is really extremely powerful. You're listening to the Community News Desk on Rick Radio. I'm joined now by Mary Moynihan who's Artistic Director of the Smashing Times Theatre Company and you are performing a play here, or is it two monologues here this evening at the Community Centre at 7pm. So you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Jen. Thank you. Uh, so the two play, the two monologues that are you're performing, one of them is about Nora Connolly. And obviously people will be familiar with the story of James Connolly. Uh, but could you tell us who exactly was Nora Connolly? OK, well, Nora Connolly was the daughter of James Connolly. Um, and just to give a little bit of a background to the performance, uh, Smashing Times is a theatre and film company and we also have the Smash Times International Centre for the Arts and Equality. So what we do is, is use drama and theatre and the arts, visual arts, film, digital technologies to promote equality and human rights. And a big part of that work um, that I've become involved in is around historical memory, remembering women's stories in history, particularly women's stories that have been forgotten or denied. And we created a performance called The Woman is Present, um, Women's Stories of 1916 to 1923 and Women's Stories of World War Two. And what we're showing in the play are two of those monologues. So the first monologue, as you said, is about Nora Connolly. And it's a beautiful piece that's actually inspired by Nora's own words. Um, and she was actively involved in supporting um, Ireland's fight for freedom. Uh, she was very close to her father. And the monologue that we're telling is recalling her last visit with her mother, Lily, to see James Connolly in, in a room in Dublin Castle um, the night before he was executed. Which is unbelievably moving. Then, yes. say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, Dublin Castle back then um, at, at that time was used as a military hospital for for uh, I think it was for English soldiers who had been injured in World War One. And he was in, he was imprisoned there and being cared for because he had been injured in 1916 and they were allowed to visit him. And they then had so and the room in Dublin Castle, you can actually go and see this room. Um, uh, it's part of the tour in Dublin Castle. 
And she recalls very movingly the words that were spoken between the family and the love between James Connolly and his wife, Lily, and the love with um, Nora and who was very close to her father. And it's it's a beautiful memory within very horrific circumstances, mm. if you like. And I suppose that's what drama and theatre are are very powerful around. It's throwing light onto darkness and telling these stories of a dark history that we have. But yet it's important to tell these stories because we need to know what happened. And I think this just offers a perspective of um, the love and care that surrounded these people and the sacrifices, the sacrifice mm. that James Connolly made to give up his life. Um, now, I would encourage, always encourage young people today that you live for your country, you don't die for your <laughs> country. Um, but, uh, and you know, we're living in a time of, we're witnessing what's happening across Europe with exactly. the war in Ukraine. And it is just, you know, um, for me, Connolly was very much a socialist and Nora Connolly was very much a socialist and a politician who believed in equality in society. Mm. And so the performance is telling that story. It's a short piece. And then the other piece we have then is called, um, it's about a woman called Eshi Steinberg. At Summer's End. At yeah. Summer's End, yeah. And Eshi, so so we're telling, uh, because it's International Women's Day, remembering stories of women in history. And these two particular stories are more about women telling, you know, it's more about their experiences. So they're like imagined recreations of moments from the lives of these women. So Nora's story, what you see is true. And it's the same with Eshi Steinberg. Eshi was an Irish woman who is... Um, known to have been murdered in Auschwitz along with her young son, um, Leon, and her husband, Wojciech. And that's what we were saying just there about, you know, ordinary women's lives to kind of celebrate them and bring them to the fore. And as you said, we're seeing in the Ukraine where you're seeing, you know, normal people in exile. And that's kind of almost like ties in with what summer, Summer's End is about itself is more about, you know, just the ordinary people in exile and how extraordinary things, events happen to ordinary people and their stories. Yes, because a, a huge part of us telling these stories is to ensure that we remember the atrocities of the past and particularly the impact of war on ordinary people and the destruction and the devastation that war can bring into people's lives. Um, and, you know, for Eshi, it was the ultimate sacrifice to to um, to lose her life and the life of her family. And they were just an ordinary family. They had been Eshi had been living in Ireland, brought up in Ireland. I think her family originally from Czechoslovakia. And then when she got married, they had moved to Belgium. And then when the Second World War started, they fled to France. They were actually on the run in the south of France. Um, moving from place to place every night. So that type of life with a small child constantly on the run, being hunted, basically. And the story is, is that one night, as she said, she just needed to rest for a short while. And that night they were caught in a raid and were rounded up and were immediately transported to Auschwitz where they were, where they lost their lives. And I think it's a beautiful piece by a writer called Phelan James. And it really captures Etty's love of life. And her story as an ordinary young person setting out in life and just wanting the best for herself and her son and just wanting the simple things that we all want, like love and friendship and the chance to live our lives in peace. And sometimes what we take for granted almost as a given, you know, those like love and shelter and care. And what we've seen over the past two years ourselves is like even during the pandemic, it's just how important these things are. But also, like you say, how important these stories are and, and, and how important was it to tell these stories from, as you said, a, a woman's perspective, I'd say from Nora Connolly's perspective, you have something about, you know, the rising where you would think of it, 
uh, as a very male centric thing, apart from, you know, Countess Markovich. But we would think of, you know, the heroes, the 1916 heroes, and we don't necessarily think of the women. How important is that to get those those women's voices heard that were so integral to the part of, you know, our history? It is so important, um, so important. I remember when we were first asked in 19. Or sorry, in 2015, to look at telling stories of women involved in the 1916 rise, and I remember thinking that exact same thing. Well, we know there was Countess Markovich, but how can we create a play or a film when there were very few women involved? And it's like what I refer to as, you know, Harry Potter's invisibility cloak. These women were there; they were active. We know there were over from between two and three hundred women were actively involved in 1916, um, and many more women involved in the whole um, period from the decade of commemorations from 1912 to 1922. Sh- a huge amount of women, ordinary women, living, finding themselves in extraordinary circumstances who went out and uh, stood up against injustice and stood up for equality and rights. And what surprised me with so many of these women, you had Helena Maloney, you had Margaret Skinner, we know Hannah Sheehy Skeffington, um, there was Dr. Kathleen Lynn, so many women. But what struck me when I started to research all these stories, because when you start to look, the invisibility cloak disappears and you discover, hang on, women were active, women were doing things, women were never quiet in the background, they mm. were always active. It's just that their stories were never told because we have lived with the narrative of maleness and and you know historians male and female are now putting those stories back into history um, which is fantastic but what we're doing is taking those stories and animating them through the arts because I think they're really important stories to tell in their own right um, but equally there are stories that we need to hear because they give us role models for young mm. men of women of what it means to be active and what struck me about all of these women was they weren't just fighting for Irish freedom. They were equally fighting for change, for social justice, for what we would call human rights today. And I think that's the thing. It's That's what's so powerful, I think, for me as a woman, is the fact that we're so used to the, the male-centric hero narrative, almost like superhuman, when you learn about these men, or even in plays, uh, in literature and art, how they're seen and how their characteristics are developed. But I think what's so important about what you are doing with Smashing Times is like you're injecting the, the importance of the ordinary and the, the importance of how women survived in that society but giving them their own hero narrative but it, it's done in a very a way that is very relatable to people I think and that's what's really important Yes they are and what we find is when audiences see these stories you know sometimes the stories can be they're, 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 the, the setting or the context can be quite sad or quite horrific or quite dark but what we find is people come out quite elevated after the performances and in really positive form because they're inspired mm. by the qualities and the values of the women which thankfully come across in the performance and that's what we always wanted as an artist when I, I was one of the writers on these pieces um, and they are inspired by the words as well of the, the women themselves um, we were very very keen to get across the qualities of these women because these women had a very um, you know they, they never gave up they were very resilient they were very mm. brave they were very courageous and it's interesting because we're seeing that today with the Ukrainian people standing up against the, the aggressor the, the bravery and the courage of the resilience of ordinary people in times of war. Yeah, and it, it, like that's it. it's history repeating itself all the time. So like in that, how how can we learn from them? What is, you know, their stories are as relevant today as they were. So, you know, these women were pioneering women, but we, we can still learn from them in today's climate is basically 
what you're saying kind of there that it's absolutely we, so first of all we need to tell the stories to ensure that the atrocities of the past aren't forgotten but equally we need to tell the stories from the past because they're a way to inspire discussion and debate around what are the values we want to live in in our society and I, I particularly believe we need to change the the types of role models that young people are getting in schools it should be 50 50 on every curriculum in a secondary school in a primary school in a university 50 50 uh, men and women's stories because what we get from these stories is as we said we talked about the 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 idea of standing up for the rights of the stranger Mm. and that's really important Um, and stand because if you stand up for the rights of someone else you're standing up for your own rights so i think it's teaching our young people about, the, you know, the UN Declaration of Human Rights, the EU Fundamental Charter of Human Rights, the idea of of knowing what human rights are, which is basically about respect for the other, accepting uh, diversity and difference and r- respect and dignity for, for human beings. And we have to generate discussions with young people and with everybody in society around what that means so that we're aware and we advocate and support politicians who will advocate because Ireland has a really strong role to play, you know, uh, in the UN um, and and this idea of worldwide promoting peace and promoting mm. equality and we really need to small little ripples can move yeah. out into the big ocean and create change that's <laughs> it and that's what we want and I think it's also about valuing women and seeing the value in women's stories I think for us in Ireland, a lot of Irish women's stories have been buried. And yes. we know that from even looking, you know, the, you know, last week at the Magdalene Laundry documentaries that were on RTE and just that whole sense that women have such a huge part to play in history and, and women's lives are very different to men's lives in regards to historical context of what women went through and the fact that these stories need to be out there, they need to be told. And it's something that you said so easily can be done if it was 50-50 voices of men and, and women in a historical sense that is brought into schools and in literature and everything. And I think that will just help promote equality and diversity. That's what we need. Yeah, yeah. And I think it was the American poet Adrian Rich who said that, you know, if your stories are unspoken or unspeakable or you remain nameless, you eventually metaphorically cease to exist. Um, and I think then what that tells young women growing up, if I'm hearing stories, so it's 78 percent male and 10 percent, 30 percent female, I start to think that I'm less mm. and I start to feel that somehow it's not my role to be active in society because, you know, and that idea of feeling less is something we have to change, that you have to you have to have those role models, you know, mm. because you're inspired by them and it gives you the courage to take that step then to where you need to go to in your life. So I just think and we've had young men come in from schools. We've worked at all schools across Ireland and they love these stories. They really get inspired by the women's stories. Which is great. And the thing is, we don't want to have to make it a sense where we're seeking these stories out. Or This is great that you're shining a spotlight yeah. on these women. And that's what I think so is so important about this project. So the there's two monologues. They're on tonight, Tuesday, and it's anybody can come into the community centre here. It's at seven o'clock. And thanks so much, Mary, for everything. That's great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. My thanks to Mary Moynihan for joining us to talk about the play The Woman is Present, which is on this evening here in the community centre at 7pm. 
as it's International Women's Day, we were talking about the women that inspire us in our lives. So I am joined and happy to be joined by Jennifer Betts, who works here in Ringsend and Irish Town Community Centre. And she's here with her mother, Julie Betts, who obviously is a very inspirational woman in your life, Jen. Very, absolutely. My biggest fan. She's read my book three times. <laughs> <laughs> and your biggest inspiration as well, would biggest you say? Biggest inspiration. Oh, yeah. I could write four more books on her. Definitely. Now, you're getting loads of detail out of you now. <laughs> That's it. You'll have no secrets. <laughs> but as it's International Women's Day, we're talking about women in the in the past in Ireland and what has really changed for them and developed. And there wasn't really any International Women's Day, really. Like, it, no. it seems like a modern and newish kind of thing. So what do you think, Julie, has changed? What have you seen change for yourself? Or can you see in Ringsend in Irish Town for women? For women, um, they've more independence, I think. Um, I don't know, they just... Probably wasn't. It was just work and mind the kids when yeah, when you, you got were, married you and, and that was it. And know? when you were growing up, we were saying we were talking before me and Jen about you had to leave school early. Like yeah. uh, all girls, kind of had to leave school in yeah, Ireland 13, at that time. Yeah. You're thirteen. And yeah. um, did you go straight out to work then, or what did you do? Yeah. Um, no, I was no, I was nearly fourteen. Yeah. I, was, I left. I started work in July, and I would have been fourteen in September. Mm. So it was my father come in one day and he says to me, um, Julie says, I've been to an interview for you for a job. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, where? And he said, it's over on the docks. Right. I said, you're starting Monday. So I said, OK. He said, OK, then them days. Nowadays, they say, oh, here, mm. tell me more about it. But, um, and yeah, would I continue? Or? Yeah. About the job. Yeah. So I went over that, that Monday morning. I'd all my hair all pipe cleaners all curly, uh, lovely pink and white dress, white cardigan, white socks, white runners, and went over in the boat with the dockers. And there was another girl there. Um, she walked over there as well. I don't think she was on the boat that day. I think she went earlier than me. But when I got over, the men were all saying, what you get now? It's a slippy to seaweed everywhere. <laughs> Lots of steps. They kept, they had me a bag of nails. But uh, when I got to the steps, um, I was shaking how much I slipped oh, and no. fell into the river. Oh, no. <laughs> so one of the men grabbed me by the hair, which meant all my curls were gone. So uh, I was full of muck and seaweed. And someone went and got my father. He was in work early. And he was running up and he says, Yeah, all right, all right. So I'm granddad, I said, I was crying. I said, I fell into the water. He says, I know you did. I heard you did. Yeah, all right. So I'm glad. He says, you know, you can't miss your first day. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't matter that you fell into the water. No, you had to get back out and can't then keep working. And that was your first day of That's work. Day. And then you've lived here all, well, all your life in the area, in the surrounding oh, yeah. area. And where were you from originally here in Ringsend? Uh, just across the road. And what was, was it like back then? Like Because like, we've seen the way that things have kind of developed so much here and the mm. way that it's changed as in with Google and everything and all the buildings coming in and the modernisation of it. But just for people that wouldn't have been aware, what was the kind of area like back then? What what, what uh, was it like? What shops were there? What did it look like? There was a lot of shops. Local and, people. And and lot and of lo- yeah, a lot of, lo- lot of uh, small grocery shops. And they all did well. Mm. You know, I actually worked in one. It's Sally O'Brien's now. Yeah. I worked in one when I got married. Um, Just part-time it was, you know. But... Uh, no, there, there was a lot of 
I say people people from Rings End did all their shopping in Rings in End. Rings End. There was yeah. back then there was no question of getting a bus There's out no of town to no supermarkets. No supermarkets the yeah. first supermarket that we I can remember was down the end of Talbot Street. Mm. I think the name of it was Powers. Yeah. And I brought my mother in one day and I said, everything's really cheap in here. Just get what you want. Throw into the trolley. <laughs> Didn't realise it was nearly two weeks' wages. I paid. Oh, my God. <laughs> Coming home with nothing. <laughs> but uh, it wasn't as cheap as I thought. But um, no, it was, it was a lovely area to grow up. Yeah. I grew up in Canamuni Gardens and everyone knew everyone. Mm. And still does. And still does, yeah. 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 As my brother once said, they went to pull one night and they read to name everyone's dog. <laughs> That's the most important thing. Dogs. Might not be able to name the husbands, but we'll know what the name dogs the are dog. called. Oh, the husbands are called something. <laughs> the dogs got treated better. Yeah. But as well, we think about Rings End, we think uh, we're talking about community and how important it is. But I think, you know, bringing it back to Women's Day again, there's a lot of strong women or strong female characters here in Rings End. And it would be anybody that you can think of that would have been, you know, influenced influential to you or someone that you grew up with that you you thought was inspiring you you knew everyone in Ring's End you still know everyone in Ring's End so (laughs) yeah and who would have been like your your best friend or your someone that you think you better give a shout out to your friend in Manchester (laughs) she might be listening yeah yeah we had the football club we were on the football team only about 12 wow and I have the photograph a home big photograph and it breathes on us. She lives in, Man- in Lancashire, Lancashire. Yeah. And uh, hello, Breda. I asked my I asked my grandchildren to pick me out in the photograph, and they picked me out immediately. To say, I said, "How did you know it was me? Because you look sick looking, Annie." <laughs> <laughs> Full like, of compliments. You're like a Biafran. I said, Thanks very much. <laughs> and I did. <laughs> and how did you end up getting involved in football? Because we wouldn't really like back then associate like a lot of uh, women playing football maybe as much as we would now and I know we have great female like girls women's football teams here now yeah. but back then how did that happen how did you get involved we were only I think we were 12 or 13 at the time and um, we weren't great footballers because we played in high heel shoes mules oh my god <laughs> boots, wore our jeans back to front because you didn't wear jeans with your zip in the front then <laughs> you know but um there was one on our team, Angie Lyons. She was in Canamuni, still there. Yeah. She was the tomboy of, of the team, you know. She yeah. was brilliant, brilliant footballer. So but you followed her? Just, you huh? followed her around the field, around the yeah. pitch? Yeah, <laughs> But there was Bolton's football club down beside Ringsend School. And <clears throat> it was for fellas. And uh, we decided one day we'd get a team up. And there was a woman in Canamuni, Mrs. Morphy. Um... She got us all together and I started organising the matches. So any match we played, we won. But we played against Donnybrook, played against a few places, so a lot. But, um, we'll have to uh, post that picture of your football team on their page. Yeah. I'm sure a lot yeah. of people will be interested to see it. Yeah, even put the news for wherever. Yeah. Wherever suits. And did you come up against any opposition with like men or boys saying they shouldn't be playing football or no? no. no. Surprisingly supportive for once. Yeah, got a lot of we did. So. <laughs> it was more to give them a laugh. Oh, see, that's <laughs> it. Yeah. The match one day, one night it was because the only time my father ever walked late and it was in Rings End Park and John Moore 
Lord Mayor and Chandler, he came down to see us. He was the Lord Mayor of Lord Mayor. Dublin at the yeah. time. But uh, he came down to see us and we won the match and he presented us with little small boxes of milk tray and <laughs> six sweets in it. But the Lewis just got medals, huh? which we objected to. There was more to <laughs> There should have been the other way around. Yeah. yeah. Where were your medals? They, they were better looking than us. <laughs> <laughs> we should get a reunion going for our own, for our girls' football teams around here so Definitely. we can have the original yeah. footballers, yeah. female footballers in Ringtown. That would be amazing. Yeah. So for great. you, Jen, growing up, <laughs> how influential in that way was seeing your mum, like a, 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 what effect did it have on your life just hearing her stories about growing yeah, up. Yeah, I mean, my mum, like, always told us stories from when we were very young and uh, they all, with the plot twist at the end was the the girl in the story was her. <laughs> so we were, we were amazed, you know, everything she went through and I've always said that my mum has nine lives. Uh, she's been through so much in her life and, um, but yeah, I do really mm. admire her, definitely. She's, uh, no matter what she's been through, she's a fighter. Mm. So, and yeah. is there any memorable story that you would have taken and kind of been you know inspired by in your own life or um well, she used to um be a dressmaker when she was younger one of one of her many talents and many jobs um and when she tell me like she was going to a, a ball or she'd make her own dress and she'd show me pictures and I was always fascinated uh, she could just whip something up in no time mm. and she'd have a different dress every week and so I just thought she was really glamorous and amazing and how did you feel then, uh, Judy, when Jen started writing her book? Did you have any reservations about her writing or how did you feel? No, no reservations. I said it from she was a kid. Yeah. She'd be a writer. Yeah. Because <clears throat> she used to do all the poems in our class for Mother's Day or for Easter or Christmas. Mm. She'd be the one that write the poems. And I used to say to her, keep all them notes, they come in handy. Yeah. You know, you can write your book, put little notes in your book. I still have loads of embarrassing diaries as well from <laughs> that I'm afraid We'll get to you to at. read some of them out at some oh, yeah. stage, I hear. <laughs> get a lot of people into trouble. <laughs> Namely yourself, probably, Namely though. Myself, yeah. definitely. But it's good to have a writer in the family then, that's what you're saying. Oh, yeah. To yeah. keep all the stories going. Yeah. That's really important, I think, yeah. And hopefully she get another one soon. Yeah, well, people are asking already. So if anyone's really waiting on it, I'm at 6,000 words of my new book. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll That's get it. there. We'll get there. Another 50 to go. <laughs> <laughs> and how do you think now, when you're you're looking at Rings End now these days, how do you think that, you know, for women looking at your own daughters as well, how things have changed for them? Um. Well, there's only Jennifer here. Oh, Linda's here as well. Yeah. Two daughters living down here. The rest live... One in May, I was mm. sewn up in Cabra. Uh, Paul and Christian, I better mention Christian. When <laughs> <laughs> um, they, um, I mean, they still come back to the area. They still, you know? yeah. Even, even my son now, he does say to him, to me when he comes down here, he said, it's like coming home, ma'am. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. You know, he says it's just a feeling in Rings End. It always just had that closeness. feel. Yeah. Yeah, I always had that feel. I do, even uh, my sister who lives in Maid, when I'm walking up the beach, I take a video of the beach and I send it to her and as she puts it she's like I can almost smell it <laughs> we don't know if that's a good thing we or a bad know. thing though <laughs> what kind of smell I don't yeah. know <laughs> and I do think you know because we've been through so many changes and I think we've really progressed as a country for women like maybe only in the past 
30 years I'm going yeah, to say definitely. and like do you notice that difference from when you were growing up and, and what did you face a lot of opposition as you were saying when you left school early and just to go out to work all the time um, is you'd feel that there is more advantages now obviously Oh yeah, like even when I started to walk there was a lot of jobs going in Ring's End mm. you know like at Bishops that was over by Bowlands used to make sacks um there was the rock factory up in Sandy Mount. There was so plenty of sound places. You could just walk in and get a job anytime. But it's harder now. Yeah. It's very hard now for them to get it, just walk in and get a job. Yeah. Yeah. It's more of a skill set now that you have yeah. to have, isn't yeah. it? And yeah. yeah, degrees and experience. And as mm. you said, in Ring's End, it was just so you probably heard it word them out. Such and such is looking for someone to work for them. And yeah. 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 Popped on down. But you wouldn't change it though you would never leave you'd never wanted to leave or no no I did leave Rings End for two years I went out to Kilbarrick and I got homesick <laughs> <laughs> that's what so everyone far. says so I, there was a girl um, asked to transfer with me to Stella Gardens yeah and oh I was over the moon back yeah. down to, to the village you know I'm, I'm actually living over the bridge behind Rings End Church and my son loves it there and he keeps on saying to me, Ma, you didn't really move our Rings End. You can still see the church from here. <laughs> Once you can still see the church, you're yeah. still in Rings End. You're OK. Yeah. My nephews were that live in Maid were like, why did you move out of Rings End, Nanny? <laughs> you belong. This is where you belong. <laughs> That's it. I do miss the neighbours now. I used to live in Irishtown and uh, miss the neighbours. They'd always drop in, you know, where yeah. I live now. I'm in the apartment now, so... You wouldn't see as many. It's not yeah. as close. Yeah. And do you find that now with the area that that kind of that closeness, that kind of, you know, it's, neighbor it's not feeling is gone? No. It's not yeah. 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 That's why we still need places like the community centre yeah, where you can do. come oh, yeah. and get involved and yeah. meet people and mm. get that spirit back. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us um, on International Women's Day. Thank you. Thanks. My thanks again to Jennifer and her mother, Julie, for joining us. And also thanks to Mary Moynihan, Artistic Director of the Smashing Times Theatre Company and Labour TD, Ivana Batchik. That's me, Jennifer Gannon, finished for International Women's Day. Hope you are enjoying International Women's Day with all the women in your life to celebrate them. We'll be back next Monday at 12 noon with the Rick Radio News Desk. Oh,